0: you have your Bibles, before we turn to to 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 8, which will be our text this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I believe this is a a good starting point. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Kind of a beginning bookend and where we will go with the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 8 would be the The end of the bookend. And our lives are lived out somewhere in between that. In a message that I've entitled this morning, Living and Dying Well. Let me define well as for the glory of God in all that we do. Look at what the Apostle Paul has to say to the believers in Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Again, whenever we see therefore in Scripture, we have to ask ourselves what's the therefore, therefore? And what he is doing is he is pointing to the previous 11 chapters of the book of Romans and he says on the basis of that, on the basis of of all that God has done to save you, to save me, this is therefore your response. You are to live as though you were a sacrifice, sacrificing your life for Christ. Laying your body down, so to speak. But what is he really getting at? Really, this is a a response of joy for all that he has penned, that the Lord penned through him in these first so many chapters of Romans. The first three chapters, what do we see? We see the utter sinfulness and depravity of man. Each one of us can identify ourselves with the first three chapters. That there is no one righteous, no not one. That we all fall short. And that if that were the end of our story, then we would spend all of eternity in hell and eternal damnation and condemnation. But praise the Lord, that isn't where Paul stops with the book of Romans. If he did, it would be one of the most depressing epistles in all of Scripture, if not one of the most depressing three chapters ever written. Praise the Lord, he doesn't stop in Romans chapter 3. But then he goes on and he lets us know God's answer to man's sinfulness. God's answer to the, the problem of sin. Going all the way back to the garden. And he says the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ and placing your faith and confidence in him. And he gives example after example. Remember, he starts with Abraham. It says, before Abraham did anything, what did he do? He had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in what God had declared, promised of the coming one, the Messiah. Did he know the name Jesus Christ? Nobody knew of the coming one. And that is who Abraham trusted in. Before he did anything such as offering Isaac, he placed his faith in Yahweh, the Lord, and the coming one. And then he spends chapter 6, 7, and 8 talking about what? The blessing of the Holy Spirit. And praise the Lord, we are not called to live this life of holiness and a living sacrifice in and by ourselves and in our own strength. But he has given us the Holy Spirit as the helper, as the power by which we are able to say no to sin. And it's as if he's described that and unpacked what it means for us to trust in Christ for salvation the very first time. And he's unpacking it and allowing us to see in full technical or high definition or or whatever you want to say the latest and greatest television would be these days, right? So that we might understand the magnitude of the salvation that he has given us. And then he says on the basis of all of that, I urge you, I plead with you, live your life as a sacrifice to the Lord. But I don't know about you. I I don't want to just live for the Lord well and for his glory. I want to finish well. I wanna, I wanna die well. I want to live for God's glory, but I also want to die for God's glory. And when I die for God's glory, as much as it relates to me, I want to die for God's glory in the most appropriate and visible way so that people see that when I am dying, that I'm not looking at it as something bad. But that I'm looking at it as, looking at it as something incredibly good. And really a launch pad into that which I don't really understand, but that I know will be beyond anything that, is, that I can contemplate and think about. That that's how great it is. That I am not dying, but I am departing. As we will look at Second Timothy this morning, the question I want to pose to all of us first is how... Do you look at your life, your present life, right here, right now? And then what is your prospect of death? As you consider death, what what do you really think? Because our vantage point can change everything depending on what and how we are looking at our particular life even the circumstances that we find ourselves in. You can put two men in exactly the same circumstance and they will have entirely different perspectives and attitudes towards that. That's pictured in this poem about two men in prison. Two men looked through the bars. One saw the mud, the other the stars. Knew that there was something beyond this. You would think that, If we went to a religious leader such as Gandhi, that he would fill us with all sorts of hope as to what life looked like at the end, in our dying days. But that is not the case with the world-renowned Hindu religious leader. This is what Gandhi had to say. My days are numbered. I am not likely to live very long. Perhaps a year or two more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slough of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. Not very encouraging. That's, that's not the way I want to die. When, when I die, I, I, I want to I die like Heather Howard. I want all those around me to know that even though my body is wasting away, that my soul is rejoicing. And that all I'm about is telling others about Jesus. And that's why I want another breath. And that's why I want another day. You know, I've spent time with, with lots of people who died poorly. That's what our life was like in the jungles of Papua New Guinea before the gospel went forth. Lots of times with, with guys that died and w- women that died, oh, so wrong and horribly. Writhing in pain but in sheer terror over what was waiting for them. On the one hand, you could tell and you could hear it and you could see it that they they, they were trying to grasp and hold on to life as much as they possibly could. And then on the other hand, they were trying to manipulate everybody in the room and the entire village to such an extent that they could somehow pass fear on to them. With giving all sorts of threats, hey, don't go to my swimming hole when I die don't fish in my fishing hole don't go to my garden and steal my food if you do i am going to come after you i'm not just going to come after you i'm going to come after the whole village and i'm going to attack your gardens i'm going to turn everything upside down i'm going to make your children sick so instead appease me show me honor The the women would do the same things. They were totally fearful, but on the other hand, they were just trying to instill fear in everyone. It was all part of Satan's plan to just wrap them in so that all that they lived in was fear. And no one looked forward to death. Death. No one wanted to die. In fact, they did everything they could to keep themselves from dying. And whenever somebody died, there was always a spiritual reason, and it had to do with spirits. It had to do with, oh, you must have eaten that popo, so now you need to go and find out from this papaya owner exactly what happened, and then you have to do some sort of incantation to allow your child who is now sick to get better. Complete change when the gospel came in now you want to talk about one of the the most blessings of my life is to listen to a woman on her deathbed tell her entire family no tell the whole village hey listen don't follow satan's ways any longer don't be deceived i am going to a far better place i'm going to the place of forever papayas forever pig meat I don't have to shoot any pigs. I don't have to go out and gather food. I will just be eating it forever. So you know what? You can go to my gardens. You can go to my hole, my water fishing hole, and you can shoot as many fish as you want because you know what? I don't care about any of that anymore. I'm not from this ground. My home is somewhere else, and God is taking me there. Follow me. That was the testimony of Siawi after Siawi after Siawi, the people in our village. That's how I want to die. A testimony for the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Timothy and let's see what Paul has to say as he gives us these three ways to follow his example and know how to live and die well for God's glory In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 8 and what Paul does is he breaks this into basically three time capsules. Your present reality and what, how you're living right now for the Lord, how you lived in the past and then what it will look like for you in the future whether or not you're holding on to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus or not. And all of these things are so challenging for us as he It challenges, encourages us to not only live well and live for God's glory, but to die well and die for God's glory, recognizing that it's not dying at all. That it's departing to something so much greater that you and I can't truly grasp it. So look at what Paul says, verses 6 to 8, chapter 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your remarkable plan of redemption of salvation. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, Lord. If anyone here this morning has not trusted in you, Lord Jesus, as their savior, may you work in their hearts, open their eyes so that they would do that this morning, that they might receive this crown of righteousness that we're going to look at, that they might know the hope. Of eternity, Lord. That they might know that when they pass from this life, it is not ending this life at all, but it is starting something far, far greater. And it's entering into something far, far greater. So bless now the preaching of your word. Set set me aside. This might be verses that Everyone here has heard many, many times, Lord, but I, I pray that you would write your word upon our hearts and that we would be able to take these things, these truths to heart, that we might live for you, for your glory, that we might be faithful and consistent so that as we look back on our lives, as Paul looked back on his life, that we would know that we have fought the good fight and that we have finished of course, the race, Lord. And we've held on to the faith that we have not compromised your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So where does Paul go first? He goes to this, regard your present. Wake up and recognize right here, right now, this is how God wants us to live. In light of reality that this might be your last day. And with each one of these points, I want to present a question for us. And the question that goes with regarding your present days as the Lord's is this. Do you live as though you are about to die and depart? Do you live as though you are about to die and depart? You see, that was Paul's perspective. That's where he starts off. As he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The four is pointing back to the the purpose, the reason why he wrote the first five verses. Why he's challenging, commanding Timothy, hey, preach the word whether you feel like it or not. Because a time is coming, in fact, it's already here, Timothy, and you know it where people are no longer going to want to receive sound doctrine, that which is healthy for them. Instead, they're going to want the doctrine, the teaching that tickles their ears and makes them feel good but does not help them. And so he says, remember... Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And then he gives them the reason. Why? Why, Timothy? Why am I telling you to continue and to continue and to continue doing this? Because I'm at the end now. And as I am now wrapping up my life, Timothy, listen to me. I have no regrets. I'm not looking back at anything that I have done wishing that I'd spent a little bit more time doing what the Lord wanted me to do. That instead of going over here, no, no, I'm, we're just going to pull back a little bit longer. No, he, he has none of those regrets. I've dedicated my life to the right thing, Timothy, and now I'm telling you to continue dedicating your life to the right thing. It's just the gospel which is continuing to follow Christ. And then he says this, this remarkable statement. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. What he means by that is he's already being poured out as a drink offering. It's already begun, it's already started. It points to a a particular time stamp in the past where something started and, and yet it continues to complete and come now to the present day. It's as if he is saying that whatever kind of offering that he is offering, that he began giving his life as this particular offering right when he arrived in jail here in Rome as if one little droplet was given at that time and then another droplet another droplet ultimately going to the point to where he would give up his life but is it going to happen fast no it doesn't appear that it's going to happen in one particular incident because he says to Timothy hey come to me and it wasn't like Timothy could jump on a boat or or he could jump on a boat but a fast boat like we have today or an airplane So it's going to take him some time to get from Ephesus to Rome. So Paul knew that what was happening wasn't going to happen in, say, one day. But he's committed himself to this, that he recognizes, man, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. What we have to understand is what is a drink offering? What is he referring to? What's he talking about? We could spend some time in Numbers 15 or Leviticus chapter 1 and we could could look at the burnt offering and how what was associated along with the burnt offering were two things, the grain offering and then this, the drink offering. And perhaps you're familiar with what a burnt offering is. That's what most of us are familiar with. That is the offering that was done for sin. That is the offering of a of a bull, a sheep, a goat, and, and even in some cases, birds. And what would they do? Before you'd burn that particular animal completely up, you would kill it. you it would slit its throat. You'd take the blood, and what would you do? You'd, you'd collect that blood in a basin, and then you'd sprinkle that blood on the altar. And then after that, then the whole body would be burned. But remember, you identify yourself with that particular animal. As if your guilt is being passed on to who? Onto that particular animal. And that animal's life was given on behalf of yours. That animal's your substitute. That's the picture given here. But he doesn't say that he's being poured out as a burnt offering. He's, he says he's being poured out as a drink offering. Th- this was wine that was, that was given. Along with the burnt offering. And you would pour this along with this animal sacrifice in this burnt offering. But the significance behind this was an entirely different thing. This wasn't to pay for your sin. This was a testament, an offering of joy and thanksgiving for what God had provided in your substitute. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, "Hey, I, I, I'm not doing anything that, that would even in viber look anything like the burnt offering, because what Christ did, he paid for that in full. And unlike all of the animals that we see in the Old Testament that were offered again and again and again, Christ came once and offered his life once as payment for sin. And then that was completed. And Paul is saying, no, I I don't offer myself as a burnt offering. The one who paid for me, he already did that. But now what I am doing is I am offering this, the end of my life. I've already served the Lord, the Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I've already lived in my life as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice for him. Holy and acceptable to him. And I've lived my life for him up to this point. And now what I am doing is now I am going to pour my life out as this drink offering, as a testimony, as an offering of praise and worship to my God. And yet he's recognizing that this isn't going to be just a a one-day thing. He's, He's now doing this over this period of time. Filled with joy and thanksgiving over what Christ had accomplished for him. Christ, his substitute. Christ, his Lord. Christ, his Savior. But you know what's even more telling about this? is Paul has already used this illustration. Turn with me to Philippians. You see, Paul's already said that that he wouldn't mind being used as a drink offering. It's just the circumstances and what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 are entirely different than his circumstances and what he is saying in Second Timothy. He has the idea of a, of a drink offering here because that's what he says. Look at what he says as he writes to the believers in Philippi who knew him. Knew what he'd gone through. He preached the gospel to them. And look at what he says. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. So even if I become a, a, a drink offering because of my missionary endeavor to you. To bring you the gospel. And now because of that. Because of that, my life is now being offered. I willingly offer it as, I will willingly offer it as a drink offering, as that kind of sacrifice. But notice he's pointing to the future. Here it's all hypothetical. This hasn't happened yet. He's willing to do it, but he doesn't know if it's going to happen, and it's not happening to him. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Hey, listen, if you hear that I am being offered as a drink offering and my life is being laid down and I am going to die because of what I said to you and because of the new faith that you now have in Jesus Christ, don't be sad for me. No, be filled with joy. Rejoice and share in the joy that I have, that I am departing this life. And that what I said to you and what I did was well worth it. That's what he's saying to the Philippians. But he's saying it all in a hypothetical sense. I don't know if this is going to happen. And then look at 2 Timothy, entirely different. He's saying not only is this going to happen, he's saying this has happened. He's recognizing that what the Lord has for him now is certain death. And yet, instead of looking at his death as though they are going to make him a martyr, he turns it around, flips it upside down, and says, no, I'm actually laying my life down as a drink offering, an offering of worship and praise to my God. All the way to the end, that is Paul's desire. Think about that perspective. He's not looking at himself as someone about to be executed, but more as a sacrifice, laying down his life on the altar. reminds me of Aslan and Narnia. And then look at what he says about death. He doesn't say anything about death. At least he doesn't use that word death. I would have used that word. Hey, my death is coming. No, he doesn't call death death. Verse 6, he calls it what? My departure. He's not looking at death the way that you and I look at death. He's looking at death as a, as a cannon that's launching into something far greater than what he's known. This very word departure, for those that would have been listening, would have pulled in all sorts of other examples. Why? Because they use this word for the shipping world, for sailing. And they use this word to talk about when a ship lifted its anchor and dropped off all the ropes and rose on the tide and then took off to its new destination. That's the idea here. It's, it's, it's a, a soldier who removes all the stakes around his tent and packs everything up and heads on to, to what he has next in store for him, his next post. It's, it's also used in, in, in husbandry and in the unyoking of an animal who is then free to, to go on away from the work that he's been doing. That's all what's pictured here. What's pictured here is what's, what's pictured in C.S. Lewis. Have You guys read the last battle. I believe he pictures it well. This is what C.S. Lewis says, the last battle where it is explained to the children who can't travel back to Narnia that they were going on to something far Reader. They were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And as he spoke, speaking of Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion, like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I think C.S. Lewis grasped the same kind of perspective that Paul had. That death is not death at all. Death is departing. Death is going on to something greater. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. So what does that mean for us? How might we think through some of this? I think it'd be something like this. Though you be the richest man alive, fill in whoever that would be for you, it's better to be with Christ. Though you've lived a hundred years and you have the most amazing legacy as far as your family goes, And you have the most wonderful kids and the greatest grandkids and even better, your great, great grandkids. And they all know the Lord and everything is just so incredibly good about your legacy. To to be with Christ is better. And though you are the smartest man ever to live or the smartest woman, or perhaps the greatest author or the greatest, you fill in the blank, musician, painter, sculptor, to know Christ is better, far better. And though you're only five years old and still have so much of your life to live, to know Christ is better. That's what Paul is saying. And How do you know when you're not living like you're ready to depart right now? For me, I keep putting the Lord off. Oh, I'll get to that tomorrow. I'll get to that next week. And I'd like to be a little bit more serious about this, but no, I've, I've got these other things that I want to do first. I've known many that wanted to go to the mission field. And they, no, no, let's wait till we finish this and then go. And then something happens and they never go. What does that look like for you? What, what is it that the Lord keeps impressing upon your heart, but you just keep putting it off to the side? Putting the Lord off. Instead of recognizing that right now is the day that the Lord wants you to live because you don't know this might be the day that you depart. So first, learn this lesson from Paul on how to live and die well. Regard your present day as the Lord's. Do I live as though I'm about to die and depart? Number two, consider your past. Did you serve the Lord consistently and faithfully? That's where Paul goes next. And he uses some examples that we're used to. He's already given us these examples in, in Timothy. Look at what he says. He now points to the, to the past. These are completed actions done in the past that, that still have ongoing consequences or ramifications to today. Basically, he's saying, hey, this is a completed thing that I have done. And God still looks at it right now as something that is completed, that he's pleased with in what I have done. But again, he's pointing everything to Christ in him, accomplishing these things. So look at what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You see, Paul knew that life was war. All Paul had to do was look at his own body. See the mud all around him, perhaps still on his body, because that's the cell that he was in remove part of his clothing, and what would he see? He'd see battle scars all over. Probably still feel them on his back. Paul knew that life was war, but you know what? He was good with it. Why? Because doing the work of the Lord is a good work. That is what he says. This is a good fight. This is worth something fighting for. All these other things, no, but here, the Lord's work is good. This is the same word used that You'd see in other places, such as Genesis, talking about what? Good trees, good fruit, what God made, the creatures. And I I think for us, we miss that. Why? Because we don't live in that world. When my family and I lived in that world, we were so much more appreciative of of the bananas that the sea always came and brought to us than today, than the bananas we get at Walmart or Costco. Okay, they're not nearly as good here so that's a little bit of the reason why but the reality is I I, we we don't live in light of thinking of them oh that's such a good and blessing thing that I'm able to have all this food if we take all the food away and we couldn't get it right now then all of us we'd be a whole lot more appreciative of the food and we would look at whatever food the Lord gives us as truly good that's the life of the people that we lived with They looked at a tree differently than you and I look at a tree. In particular, the sago palm tree. Why? Because it served so many purposes for them. It it allowed them to make their thatch on their roofs to keep the rain out of their houses. It was also used as almost like a bamboo that would do the exterior siding of their homes. It was also used as the main staple of what they ate. So they would look at that particular tree and they'd say, oh, that's a good tree. You and I would say that and that's just got a whole, whole bunch of thorns on it. I don't want that. But that isn't what Paul is speaking about here. He's, he's not talking about the good fruit or the good tree or the good creatures. He's talking about something in particular that he has given his life to and that is the Lord's work, the good fight, pursuing him. And he recognized that that more than anything else to live for, this was worth it. And that's what he's telling Timothy. Keep on keeping on. I've fought the good fight. What's the implication? Timothy, you fight the good fight and keep fighting it until you get to where I am and then you die like I'm dying. That's what he's saying. And it's not death, Timothy. Then you depart onto that which is so much better. And then he says this, I've what? I've finished the course. If if I would written this, I'd say, no, I, I won the course. Because it's, it's not course, it's a race, like a foot race. But he doesn't say here that I have won the race. He said, I have finished it. It's to complete an activity or a process, to bring something to an ending point. He's looking back on all of his years of service and he's and he said, Okay, I'm done. Praise the Lord that he allowed me to be faithful. When, when I was in cross country, whether we're talking high school or college, do you know what kind of course I wanted to run? As flat as you could give me. And it was only for my own glory because then I might get my best time. And if you made the last quarter mile or half mile or three quarters mile with a little bit of downhill, even better. Put it by the beach and I am happy. Why? Because that's the easiest race to win. Because I can get my best time there. Don't we live like that? Isn't that what so much of our attitude is? That that what I want is the easiest, the most rewarding and the least pain-filled life that you could possibly give me, Lord. Please give me that. That isn't what the Lord does. He gives us each our own lives, specifically our race that he gives us. Look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. You see, I can't run your race for you and you can't run my race for me. The Lord gives us each a race, and then he calls us to run that race and to finish it. And then he gives us the power, the strength, the ability to do that. Therefore, since we have, what, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what we forget so many times is the preceding chapter of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The, The chapter of faith. And every one of the people mentioned, starting with Cain, then going to Enoch, then going to Noah, then going to Abraham, then going to Sarah, then going to Isaac, and then going on to, let's say, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, David. They all had exactly the same lives. They all walked exactly the same course in life. No. Each one of them had an entirely different life that only they could walk with God's help. That is exactly what Paul is saying to us here. Run that race that the Lord has given you. And then don't forget about this. I also kept the faith. He gives us the analogy of faith to center everything again back in God's word, this, so that we wouldn't forget it. And when he says I've kept the faith, he's saying I've I've held on to something so as not to give it up or lose it in any way. It's watching over it. It's preserving it. It's protecting it. It's keeping it from nuancing or changing in any kind of way. And he's saying this to Timothy who could, who could be an eyewitness to say, man, you're right. You preached it. you lived it. You didn't change it one little bit. Instead, you treasured it. And that's what Paul is saying to him. That's what he's saying to us. Hold on to this faith. Hold on to your faith. Why? Because it's going to become more and more common for the Word of God to just be watered down. For the Word of God to be set aside. And for people to come up with their own vain imaginations as to, oh no, this is really what God's Word says and means. And rather what we should do is is we should love God's Word with everything that we have. It reminds me of this story that I heard about a young French girl who was blind. And after she learned to read, by touch, a friend gave her a Braille copy of the Gospel of Mark. And she read it so much that her fingers became calloused and insensitive. And in an effort to regain her feeling, she cut the skin from the ends of her fingers, thinking that would make them sensitive again, and so that she could read Braille because she couldn't read the book of Mark anymore. Tragically, however, her calluses were replaced by permanent and even more sensitive scars. She sobbingly gave the book a goodbye kiss, saying, Farewell, farewell, sweet word of my heavenly Father. Would that be your attitude? Man, she's so challenging to me. And in doing so, she discovered that her lips were even more sensitive than her fingers had been. And she spent the rest of her life reading her great treasure with her lips. And one time when she was asked how she looked as though she were kissing the Bible as she read it, she answered, Is it not nice to kiss the lovely words while I'm reading them? How would you respond? Oh, yeah, you're right. Or do you look at God's word as something that lovely, that much of a treasure? Again, all a testimony of God's grace to the Apostle Paul, to Timothy, to each one of us. So Paul, he's looked at his present and he said that my life is a sacrifice lived fully for God. He's looked at his past and he said, hey, I have fought faithfully. I've finished the race. I proclaim the truth consistently. And now he looks to the future. As we are to look to the future. And gives us this question. Do you have a confident expectation of your future reward? And here's a follow-up question. Do you know what your future reward is? You might be surprised what Paul zeroes in on here. As the future reward that is the hope of all hopes. This is what he's taken to the bank. This is what allows Paul to get up every morning with the dirt and everything and go, I don't care. I know that where I am going is going to be so much better. And Look at what he says in verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Notice what kind of crown it isn't. Again, if I had written this, what I would have said, a crown of endless joy. I mean, that, that, that'd be great, and not that I'm saying we're not gonna be in a joy-filled state in heaven with our Father and our Lord, but that isn't what this says. How about a crown of peace? Man, I wish I could have that now, and then I just put it on whenever things start to get a little crazy. Nope, that, that isn't what's promised. That isn't the hope It's not the hope of the gospel. What is it that you and I need more than anything else? We need righteousness. But not your righteousness, not my righteousness. What we need is is what Luther called an alien righteousness. Where it comes from another source. And where it comes from the one who is perfectly God and perfectly man. That is the kind of righteousness that we need. And that is the righteousness that Paul is talking about here, that there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Laid up here is this idea that's been protected and set aside, waiting for you when all other work is completed. When everything else is done, this is the end. This is chapter one in the next story. This is the very first thing that will happen to you, this crown of righteousness. And no, I don't believe it's a literal crown. It's speaking of the fact that when we go into glory with the Lord Jesus Christ, He is going to do the most amazing thing ever. He's going to give us His very righteousness. You see, at the moment of salvation, what we would call justification, it is credited to your account. It is credited to my account. Just as we would in a bank. And the billions of dollars that were Jesus are now credited, credited to us. And, and the great big debt that I had of sin was erased because of what he did upon the cross. And oh, that is such good news. That is the news that allows me to get through every day. But there is better news. And that news is that one day, miracle among miracles, I don't think we can truly grasp it. The righteousness of Christ is going to be given to us. Just as right now that same righteousness is being worked out in us in the process of sanctification where He is practically making us more and more righteous like Him. And it'll see its fulfillment, its end point in this, the glorification of the saints done by Jesus Christ for His eternal glory. Amen? Amen? Can we truly grasp what is being presented to us here? Will award to me... No, this award. This anything, doesn't have anything to do with us. We're awarded this because of what Jesus did and because of the faith that we have placed upon him, not because of anything that we have done. And then, as if we, we would think that Paul's only concerned about himself, we see his missionary heart, which should be our hearts. Not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? First notice what the appearing is. It's a real, literal, physical appearing. Paul lived in light of that as a reality. Man, is it going to happen right now while I'm waiting in this cell? I don't know. But I'm going to live as though this were my last day. And I'm going to honor him as though this were my last day. Because I know that there is coming a time. When this, the crown of righteousness, is going to be given to me. And it's not going to be something anymore that's just positional, but it is going to be literal, the real righteousness of Christ. But it's not just to me. It's to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Are you waiting for his appearing? It, it reminds me of what we read in First John 4: seven to eight. "Love is what is from God, And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God." And then we see this chilling contrast in the very next verse: "The one who does not love does not what know God, for God is love, God equative love. God equals love. So then what should be one of the distinguishing characteristics of believers? What should people see in our lives that they don't see everywhere else? Love, love, love. Love for his appearing. Love for Jesus Christ himself. Love for our God. Love for one another. And perhaps one of the most challenging and compelling right now is love for those who don't agree with us. Love for those who look at Roe v. Wade being turned and can't figure it out and just want to turn it back. Can you love them? My God does. It should be the characteristic of our lives. Hey, I'm not saying that that's not a baby. No, that they're not deceived. Some of them are fully deceived. Some of them are truly evil, but that doesn't mean that they cannot be loved to Christ through the way that we love on them. We have an opportunity now before us to lean in and love those that need the love of Christ, that need to understand and join us forever in the forever place with the many tototeire today, with the new bright eyes that exist forever. That's the way the Siawis would say, heaven, The place with the brand new bright eyes. So do you live as though you were about to die and depart? Did you serve the Lord consistently and faithfully? Do you have an expectation of your future reward? And do you recognize that that future reward is the very righteousness of Christ? That will allow us to be ushered into God's presence. And that it's from there where the rewards that we do And the righteous deeds that we do on this earth will be given to us. That we will then lay at our Lord's feet. And finally, do you have an expectation of this future reward? And are you living in that reality now? Let me close with this. An, An aged Christian man was growing weaker day by day. He and his wife had lived many, many years together. And one day, as she realized his rapid decline, she said to him, well, honey, the, the storm of your life will soon be over. And he said, well, that's, that's not entirely true. It wasn't that he did not know that his life was soon to end, but he said the storm has been over and done for near 2,000 years. It's a thing of the past. Now there's no storm, nothing but bright glory all the way for me and for you. Do you recognize the storm is over? That Jesus has conquered the storm, he's conquered death. And so now what we have to look forward to in the future is his appearing and his reward and stepping into a life that is so much greater than anything that we've experienced it's a departure into something greater let me close our time as pastor Shane and the worship team come up heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for what the apostle paul has written in second timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 8 lord we're challenged by his life and yet we are so thankful we're thankful for the picture of what it looks like to be a drink offering. That it is a response that we should have in all of our hearts for all that you have done for us. A of thanksgiving. That we willingly lay our lives down for you. For your praise, for your glory, to serve you all of our days. And then when that last day comes, Lord, that we would not look at it as death, as the completion of something here, Lord, but that we would look at it as a departure into something far, far greater. And then that would so much encourage us and take precedence in in all of our thoughts that we would want to share you and the hope that we have in you with all those around us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.